Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. These are strange days. There, there are stuff going on that we just have not, that we know of anyway, that we have seen, that we haven't seen in a long, long time. But I'll tell you somebody who I, I wanted to bring back because we've had him on the show before. And it was always, we weren't mocking him in any stretch, but I think a lot of people when they hear that someone is the preeminent UFOologist or ufologist, I'm not sure how you pronounce it, in the country, a lot of people would say, oh, all right, you study UFOs. Well, hmm. Except what we're seeing with all these stories from the last few days of stuff being shot down is by the very definition, UFO, the acronym, unidentified, we don't know what it is, flying, It's flying and it's an object. We are literally watching UFOs. And yet always, I think for a lot of people, they have kind of said, oh, those don't exist. Uh, Chris Rutkowski is, as I say, the preeminent UFOologist in Canada. He joins us now. Chris, how are you? Very well. This has to be, and again, I'm not being facetious. I'm not being too sarcastic here, but for you, this has to be, well, I don't know. What is it? Is it, is it, does it prove the relevance to a lot of people who maybe snickered at your title before because, ah, UFO, does this sort of grant you some sort of, well, see, I've been telling you all along, it's not just aliens, it's anything we can't identify. Well, it's not quite an I told you so moment, but it is true that uh, I've had a lot more interest uh, recently because this, as you said, this is exactly what uh, the topic is, unidentified flying objects. And you know, people have tried to change the acronym to UAP, Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, and, you know, even UFO itself was adopted by the United States Air Force because flying saucers seemed a little bit too silly. Yeah. And now, you know, they're, they're equated to the same thing. So, you know, these are, in fact, unidentified objects where I know the uh, the Pentagon is very careful to call them unidentified objects. And even when uh, somebody had asked whether they are balloons or not, uh, I know that, that the defense spokesman, uh, even today in a news conference, was very careful to say, no, these are objects. So they are, in fact, unidentified and flying and objects. So they are UFOs. They qualify. No, it, it is. And again, I, I think you, you may be onto something here that I think that maybe Hollywood has made it so that when you say UFO, automatically your brain goes to ET and we snicker and we say, come on, that that's not the case. But by the definition, this is what's going on. And you have, when you've been on here before, you've cited the fact that there are hundreds, maybe thousands of examples of things that would fall into the acronym of unidentified and flying and objects. This is not the first time. Absolutely. In fact, last year uh, in Canada alone, there were 768 reports that were filed uh, from, uh, from you know ordinary people on the street to pilots. In fact, uh, there was a, uh, a report last July over New Brunswick by uh, a pilot uh, who reported this to Transport Canada. And Transport Canada actually has a category in its incident report uh, directive called UFO. And this was actually reported as such uh, in that category, which also includes balloons. But it was a balloon that was flying uh, at, a, at a very high altitude. And it was seen to be rogue, and, and it had an instrument package, and, you know, it, it probably was exactly like the one that was shot down over North Carolina. And uh, and yet, because nobody was taking notice of it back in July, uh, here we had something over Canadian airspace that nobody knew about. So do you believe, then, that what is happening now has been happening for a while that maybe we have had these by maybe even by the same group or whomever is putting these out there that they this has been happening and we just have not been aware of it i think that's very very likely in fact you know we have um thousands literally thousands we have twenty four thousand uh, separate ufo reports uh, in canada alone uh, that were recorded since 1989 uh, since uh, something we do call the canadian ufo survey was initiated uh, we can go back to uh, 2011 over Chatham, Ontario, when uh, NAV Canada staff uh, at Toronto uh, Air Traffic Control were advised by uh, uh, the crew of an airliner that they had passed a very, very large balloon at 28,000 feet. So that's, you know, the same <laughs> general area as, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the the last three UFOs that were reported recently. And, that, you know, that's 2011. And, you know, we can go back uh, much further and, and more recently as well. So why, if that's the case, and 
I, I am more willing now, uh, admittedly, to buy that than I might have been prior to all this. If that's the case, why have our countries not done this before? Why are we hearing about all this now? And why would they not have identified or, or spotted these or, or been concerned about these before? What's different? Well, I think the, the stigma of the UFO uh, problem, as you know, we talked about earlier, uh, was part of it that, you know, if it's uh, people are reporting objects uh, all the time and in Canada, that's at least two a, two a day um, and they're classified as UFOs and described as UFOs. And because of, you know, the connotation, you know, science hasn't paid attention to it, um, and national defense normally hasn't paid attention to it. But it was, in fact, the Chinese balloon, which was very, very different. The, spot, the reconnaissance balloon was very different. It was very huge. Its payload was the size of a, of a 737 jet. Um, so it was very, very different. The, small, the other ones uh, that w- were brought down over Yukon and Lake Huron, um, uh, were you know much smaller than that, but nevertheless they were in you know uh, airspace that's uh, traversed all the time by passenger jets and and uh, and other aircraft. So they are a danger to uh, air travel and air safety. We've been lobbying for some time to try and get more attention paid to the UFO phenomenon because these are objects that are seen uh, in the skies where there are. Uh, you know, people in, in large planes that you know, if the pilot makes a mistake or doesn't see what's coming or the instruments are saying there's something there when there shouldn't be there, that's an issue. And so, uh, you know, these this is the type of thing that they're paying more attention to. And you see NORAD is very, very good or was very, very good at keeping track of fast-moving objects such as their aircraft and missiles uh, coming in. But they hadn't really thought about the possibility of slow-moving high-altitude objects uh, coming across, and now they've refined their sensors and the sensor array to uh, keep track of these more, and sure enough, they've found some. So uh, I think we're a lot safer now because of that, but that just shows that you know there have been a lot of things going up in the sky uh, and passing overhead that you know we've seen, but not necessarily paid attention to. Like me, I, I'm sure there are a lot of other people who, you know, have been a little bit skeptical, maybe more than a little bit skeptical of when they hear these reports. I'm not going to lie to you and say I haven't been skeptical. I have. But when we now see these stories that are capturing the attention of the world and we see that there is something there, do you think this gives credibility to all those pilots and the other people who told someone once upon a time, I saw something and they all went, uh, okay, Bob, sure. You saw, do you, do you think this has made all of their stories now much more believable? Uh, I'm hoping that it does, you know, polls have shown that about 10% of all Canadians believe they've seen UFOs. That's a pretty darn good chunk of the population. And, uh, uh, you know, we only have a small fraction of those on record now. There's a number of uh, projects underway, um, uh, some of which I'm involved with, to uh, get better um, instrumented data on UFOs, you know, things that are taking uh, pictures of the sky constantly and tracking objects moving in the sky and so forth. Uh, so we're going to get better data on this so we can better evaluate. Uh, eyewitness reports do tend to have issues. We can explain a lot of them as stars and planets and and the aircraft and so forth. Now we can say that some of them are indeed balloons, but there's a small fraction every year that don't seem to fall into those categories. There's a lot of UFO reports that don't seem to be balloons at all, and the question is, what are those? And that remains to be seen. Maybe there's something else going on in the sky that we have to pay more attention to and have more studies for. It's a fascinating thing that's going on right now because I think an awful lot of people are changing their... Opinions. I, I still don't think that people are necessarily believing that spacemen are landing, but certainly that UFOs, by the very definition, are things are real. Uh, I think that's probably very much being changed right now. Uh, Chris Rutkowski, uh, Canada's leading UFOologist. Uh, Chris, thanks so much for doing this today. Always appreciate your time. No problem. Thanks. Uh, as I say, I, I'm 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 not buying. I'm not thinking that ET is landing anytime soon. Some people, there are, there are a number of people, you can look at the stories, who really believe this is extraterrestrial. I'm not there. I'm not even close to there. I'm, I'm so far from there that there can't be seen from where I am. But again, unidentified, yes, flying, yes, object, obviously, 
Uh, we're talking UFOs and it's a real thing right now. Never thought I would see the day, but here we are. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. So we don't pay necessarily all that much attention to Japan here. We're certainly aware of the country and some things that happen there. But probably you don't know, probably, that Japan has the highest proportion of elderly citizens of any country in the world. It has been going up consistently since the 1950s. And the prime minister last month said the country's on the verge of a crisis because of the costs involved, medical and other kinds of things, with this aging population. Well, a Yale professor, a guy by the name of Yusuke Narita, he's an assistant professor of economics at Yale University, has come forward with a suggestion for this. He says the solution or the potential solution to Japan's economic problems due to its heavily aging population would be mass suicide by those of a certain age. That simply they should be encouraged to kill themselves and therefore they wouldn't be a burden, I guess, on the younger generation who are having to pay the bills because they are they're working. Now, this, this professor has sort of vacillated a little bit and said, well, I'm not necessarily saying this is a good thing, but perhaps it's a solution. Well, I want to bring in Trudeau Lemons. He is professor in the Scholl Chair in Health Law and Policy at the University of Toronto. He um, he is someone who specializes in the law and governance tools and ethical norms in medical, the medical area. He joins us now. Trudeau, thank you for doing this today. I really appreciate it. Good evening, Scott. This, and I know that almost every single person who is listening right now is saying one of two things, or maybe both. This is insanity, and two, talking about this is ridiculous because this is never going to happen. And I would agree with that probably. And the reason I say probably is because there are an awful lot of things within our medical assistance in dying infrastructure in this country right now that as little as four or five years ago, we would have said, that's insane, that will never happen, and now it's realistic. So when you hear something like this, and there are people who follow this professor, and you know, on social media, he's got half a million followers, he's getting lots of talk about this. Is it crazy to say that this could never happen, or the fact that people are going to be discussing it should we be talking about this as a cautionary tale? Well, we should, uh, in a way, discuss not so much this particular example because it's obviously uh, quite outrageous to suggest that the, that the uh, elderly should somehow rit- ritually uh, suicide with, uh, you know, in the Japanese ritual way. Uh, but the, it actually connects to discourses that we see pum- coming up from time to time, and uh, which is not so new. Uh, so I can give you the example, for example, the example of um, Ezekiel Emanuel, Ezekiel Emanuel, who is um, the vice provost of the University of Pennsylvania, who is a um, an oncologist and a leading bioethicist. He was a, a an advisor to um, to uh, to uh, President Biden, actually, in the context of the the uh, pandemic, who wrote uh, more than ten years ago an, an article in the Atlantis where he said he was talking about himself, but he said what, the title of the article was "Why I Hope to Die at 75." And in the article, he was basically saying about what a burden it is to live too long. So he said, "Living too long." It's a, it's a loss. Uh, you become disabled. You falter. You decline. Uh, it's maybe not worse than that, but it's very deprived. It robs us of our creativity, of our ability to work, uh, of, the, of of our interactions with the society and with the world. So we we're no longer really useful. So he basically stated there in that article, and he's repeated that since then, that he don't, does not have any treatment. Uh, for a serious illness after 75. Now, he's not yet 75, so we'll see if he changes his mind. <laughs> yeah. But it reflects this idea that, well, you know, the elderly are a burden on society, and so we shouldn't do as much for them when they reach a certain age. Again, he was speaking about himself, but he also sent a message that we should be, in fairness, think about the younger generations. And uh, because you spoke about... Um, about uh, assisted dying and, uh, and euthanasia in, in Canada. Um, was a recent American scholar who uh, published a blog which was 
uh, I would say, enthusiastically embraced by people who have been aggressively pushing for expansion of uh, euthanasia and medical assistance of dying in Canada. And his blog was basically sending the message that the um, mate regime in, in Canada is, uh, was a sign of moral progress. And he, he now, on social media, was talking about this, this story that you're, uh, you're bringing up here, the, of, the, of the, the scholar talking about the, the, the Japanese elderly who should commit suicide or should end their life with suicide. He basically endorses this indirectly by saying, well, um, it's, it's about time that we start thinking about how the, uh, the elder, elderly are a burden on the young ones and that we should encourage them to, uh, to make space. So it's not, so it, yes, there is a connection. Yes, it's something that comes up. Uh, yes, in academic circles, maybe not so much in, in popular media, but certainly in academic circles, you hear from time to time somebody making outrageous uh, statements about how the elderly are a burden and that we have to be re realistic and that we can't cover everything if in healthcare and therefore we should be more screening people out at a certain age. Right. Well, let's go there for a second because I, I do think that it is very unlikely and maybe I'm wrong. I do think it's unlikely that ever the time is going to come when the country will say when you hit 80 years old, you must kill yourself. I, that, that's not, that, that's not going to happen. But much more realistic, I would think, would be the idea that you will not be able to get certain medical treatments after a certain age. Uh, that, that, that to me, uh, I, I don't doubt that that could happen. That, that seems like what, with some of the other stuff that's been happening and the, the costs and whatever else, I could very easily see that down the road being something that's, that's, that is proposed by people realistically. Yeah, so, and, and, and to be fair, um, it's clear that, you know, healthcare costs have a certain constraint to it, uh, that we have to be fair in trying to think what we can cover and what we, how we can contribute to uh, the healthcare of everyone in a fair and reasonable way. Um, I think it's also fair to, um, to suggest that very aggressive interventions at a certain age um, you know, are, are often more harming than uh, than helping people, and that, that people should reasonably say would be able to say and encourage to think about: Is that what I really want? If do I want to uh, to have uh, one more further aggressive intervention that may maybe say, give me a couple of days more? But what I where I the kind of concern that I share uh, with you is is that it will be in much more subtle ways. And we see that in the MAID regime, we the Health Canada report that, that just came out and talks about this, the figures of 2021 indicate that a very significant proportion of people who ask for MAID uh, consider that they suffer unbearably because they feel that they're a burden to uh, loved ones, family members, friends, and caregivers. So if you install a regime and install a practice that normalizes uh, even the active ending of life of people because they say that they suffer unbearably because they feel that they're a burden to others. If you don't counter that, you basically indirectly suggest it's a good thing to ask for a maid when you hit, when you hit a certain age right. and you're lonely and you and you're you cost more than you 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 provide than as as. Zeke Emanuel, who I uh, mentioned in the beginning, um, basically said, you know, you become a burden, so why still stick around? Right. So if, if, if you live on a street or live in a senior's home and a number of people say, I'm now a burden, so it's available to me, I will do this, so I'm no longer a burden, and you're the one who says, no, I'm not doing that, you almost end up looking selfish by comparison. Yeah, you can look selfish, and it's also... The way we think about ourselves is influenced about the way others think about us. So if 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 hundred people say, well, actually, at a certain age, it's the the thing to do to ask for aid when you're in this position, when you have these uh, disabilities, when you have these ailments. If sufficient number of people say that, well, it becomes really hard to uh, to not be influenced by that and see see that as 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 the desired outcome. Um, we see that in. Uh, in jurisdictions that have practiced actually euthanasia already for some uh, for longer, uh, for example, in Belgium and Netherlands, which I studied in detail, um, you see that more people who are not approaching their death are asking for aid. But you also see debates 
uh, happening even at a parliamentary level of allowing uh, euthanasia or medical assistance in dying for what they call in the Netherlands, they've called it actually uh, completed life euthanasia. So a new form of MAID that would be for people who feel that their life is now complete. It hasn't been introduced in the Netherlands, but you, you can see how how normalizing the active ending of life of people may contribute to kind of a perception of when when it's a, when it's our time to to leave and when when we should be thinking about leaving. Trudeau Lemons, Professor Trudeau Lemons from the University of Toronto. Uh, love having you on. Thanks for taking time to talk about this today. My pleasure. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Don Robertson of the Dundas Real McCoys and Calm Choice Realty and live in studio and on World Radio Day, Don, this is, uh, this is the high point. We fixed it. Say something so it sounds like we fixed it. <laughs> He's looking at me, his eyes are wide open. Yeah, it's like, come on, don't, don't leave me out to dry here. <laughs> hey, um, thanks for coming in, by the way. It's, it is very unusual to, uh, to see a human being. I mean, it's been three years and, you know, leave your house. Uh, well, I, other than my family. <laughs> yeah. You know, you leave, you leave the house and you go out, but it's, uh, no, it's, it's, it's good to be feeling like we're getting back to, uh, to normal. It's, um, it's been too long. Uh, w- did you watch the game yesterday? Watch part of it. Yeah. It, it goes, they start too late for me to see it all, but, uh, it was, uh, yeah. Watch the halftime show. A big Rihanna fan. Uh, couldn't wait to see her. Really? But I noticed she was looking a little like me. Well, she she was uh, yes, she was apparently pregnant and uh, uh, still lip, is lip syncing with um, some degree of success. Um, yes. th- there were more than a few times when it seemed she stopped singing and the words kept coming. So I I see at first I thought maybe this is like an America's Got Talent kind of thing. She's not just a singer; she's also a ventriloquist. They should have uh, who was a very. Uh, v- uh, Billy Manelli, who's that? Millie Vanilla. <laughs> Might as well have them do it. Yeah, they could. <clears throat> so Billy... what would the reason be to have like a hundred people, maybe a thousand people, da- dancers in those white. Hazmat suits? Yeah. The stay puffed suits? Like, no, I, I, I said to Seuss, like, if you're in the stadium, can you actually even, if she didn't have red on, would you be able to identify her? Like you're. A long way away. No. So, uh, I mean, in Grey Cups that I've been to, uh, I remember the one at, at Rogers Center on the 100th Grey Cup when they had Justin Bieber and I think Gordon Lightfoot. Now, like, they're, they're, they're way, way, way away. People who went to the one in Hamilton and saw Arkells, I mean, they are, the concert is not for you in the stadium. No, it's for home, people at home. It's for people at home. The concert, they're, you're there and... And especially, uh, as we were pointing out, and we point this out every year, imagine you've paid whatever thousand dollars to get a Super Bowl ticket and you're on the backside of the whole thing. Because last year, if you remember, I don't know if you remember last year in Los Angeles, they had all the uh, Snoop Dogg and and Dr. Dre and Eminem, and they had that whole thing built, but it was literally only open to one side. If you're on the back of it, well, you just watch it on. The you watch screen. it on the screen, but it's 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 definitely not for you. You're you're not the reason this performance is happening. Seven million dollars for a thirty second commercial. Mm. I was going to buy one for Com Choice, but they didn't have any that were only a second long. Uh huh. Yeah. Then I did the math and said, even I don't need, I'm not even doing that. Even that. Yes. It's. Uh, it, yeah. It's. Uh, I will say this about the game. It it was shaping up to be, to me, it was shaping up to be, and I don't know if you didn't stick around till the end. It was shaping up to be a classic game. And, you know, I don't want to do this, but I'm going to. Once again, somehow the refs became the story. And that, to me, there's something troubling about that. I thought the refs called an amazing game up until there was a minute and a half left. The refs were invisible, which was exactly what you want an official to be and a team of officials. And then with a minute and a half left and there's all kinds of debate, well, was it a hold or was it not? There's sure it was probably a hold, but for four, 58 minutes and 30 seconds, that was not being called. And then all of a sudden at that moment, at the most critical phase of the game, it gets called that Don, that to me is the NFL's 
and and a lot of other sports too. When it comes to officiating, that's that's the it's the it's not that they're not calling the rules. It's the consistency of it, and the well, wait, why are you calling it here and not here? That's and it's so tough as a human being to do. But I know, I I mean, I do it from the bench. If early in a game they let a hook go or the officials decide it's not a penalty. I remind them that you've just now set the standard for the game. But isn't it usually the reverse? Aren't they usually tighter at the beginning and then let the game go as opposed to... Well, they they should be the same way through the should. whole game. Now, when it does change is if the game's lopsided. Like, it shouldn't change if it's a, you know, a, a touchdown or in a hockey game within two goals. If it's 6-1 and the guy's down 6-1, hooks somebody, it may not be a penalty in the third period because the game's not, you know, the game's almost been determined. But good officials, you set you set the bar like Foxcroft would, and if it's a penalty in the first quarter, it's a penalty in the fourth quarter. It, the, the fact that, and, and I have to go back and double check the numbers on this, but I believe that up until that point in this game, there was not a single holding call which in a football game is almost impossible. It's almost impossible to have zero holding calls in a game because we know that guys are being held. So there's holding every play. Right. So every you, play. So if you've determined that our bar for what is holding is going to be a little higher today because we don't want to have flags every play, then to call the one that's a ticky-tack one near the end, that's that's the stuff that I think drives people crazy. And it's not that the call was incorrect. It was just inconsistent with everything else that's happened. It was inconsistent with the standard that they have set, right? Like I said, there's holding on every play. Yes, Every play there's holding. And the interesting thing is, and, and as I said, I didn't stay up for the whole game, but when you when you set that standard and then you do that and you would just said the officials were invisible for 58 they were fantastic 58 minutes of the game and i look at twitter at 12:30 last night cuz i wanted to see who won the game and everybody's talking about referees That's everybody's all. talking about referees all day and you said for 58 minutes they were perfect yep. or or very excellent yep and, and it's, invisible. it's really unfortunate because the other, the other part about this uh, is you also now the other hashtag that was online on Twitter for most of the day today is hashtag rigged, which is what always ends up happening when there is a call that becomes the defining call of the game. You have people saying, look, the NFL wanted to make sure that Kansas City won. And, you know, and, and, and let's be honest, Kansas City gets more, I would argue, more than its fair share for whatever reason of favorable calls. Go back and talk. They just do. They're, they're, it just seems as though Kansas City, when there's a weird call, they're often the beneficiary of it. Are, is the game rigged in their favor? No. Are you going to convince people, though, that it's not rigged in their favor? I'm not sure. When it When it seems to be... You know, one of the players, not from one of these two teams, one of the players last week leading up to the Super Bowl talked about, well, the NFL has a script. And that, of course, got everyone talking. Oh, this is scripted. Well, no, it's not scripted. I, I don't believe... It's not wrestling. I don't believe the NFL, the NBA, NHL are rigged as far as the things go. But it almost has reached the point, and I don't know, this is not even necessarily on the officials. It's almost reached the point where with 4K TV and close-ups and super slow-mo and everything else that I don't know what you do to convince people otherwise short of having the entire game officiated by people in the booth just watching every play. Your games have been an hour longer. Could be. Could be. Could you do it live from people watching from the booth? So you've got one camera just on the offense or just on the lines and there's a guy watching from the booth where he has a perfect view from up above to see who's holding or who's not. And you have another camera on just on the quarterback to see if a guy hits him late. And you have another camera on each of the receivers to see if they're being held. And from the booth, someone flicks a switch if there's a flag. I think what would happen is that, as you say, because there's a, a penalty on almost every play, you would have the switch being flicked all the time and the game would never end. Well, look, at I... I I wouldn't change officiating. I'm okay 
with an instant replay. Uh, if it's a touchdown, if it's the kind of play that you can identify, and I'll tell you, they do an excellent job. They do. At, at every level, at every professional level, and even in minor hockey. Oftentimes, and I, I've said this between periods, every once in a while, the, our guys will be whining about the referees. And, I mean, they, I, I'm not very popular in a room when I say it. I often say the referees are better tonight than we are. Why are you mad at them? You know what I mean? Because it, it can happen. And uh, if it's not going well for the team, it's easy to blame the referees. Other than this being the biggest stage with 100 million viewers, mm -hmm. it's a pretty big deal. I would say over the course of the season, most coaches would say the, the officiating's okay. And if the officiating happens to cost you a game, in your opinion, on week three, on week 14, you're going to go, wow, I think we got a break there and won the game. Well, and my idea, which, again, I'm not actually suggesting would happen because it would cause a flag on every single play. It would be un undoable. Uh, by the same token, I think the NFL's problem it has, which has nothing to do with the officials per se, although it ties into them, is that we saw yesterday in the game, I think three plays that went to the booth to decide whether it was a catch or not. And I defy anybody who's watching, even the most knowledgeable football fan on some of those to say whether that's a catch or not. Can you please explain why this is a catch and this isn't? I know they say, well, feet down. I know one of them, it didn't look like his foot was down. One of them, it looked like he was juggling. You have created rules now that are so impossible for the public to follow that if the entire game was officiated on camera as opposed to with human beings doing, human beings doing it, nobody would understand what the heck was going on. They don't know sometimes what the call is supposed to be. I, I'm, Don, uh, m my inclination with all this stuff is any official should have one minute to look at a replay. And if you can't determine in the span of one minute after watching the replay two or three times that the call was egregiously wrong, it stands. So here, here's the challenge if you're, and I've never refereed a football game in my life, but looking at the play, when you see a sideline play, is, is, is the guy's feet, both feet or one foot, whatever it is in the National Football League, are they down? And you think of which the speed in which that is happening, because the guy's likely running wide open. Mm -hmm. And by the way, as you're looking to see if his feet are in, I want you to be able to look, and he's, he probably has his back to you, to see if he has possession of the ball. Yeah, they, they make great calls 99% yeah. of the time. And again, to me, all the stuff about replay should be, you get to watch it for a minute. Because the only thing we're looking to overrule here is not, we're not trying to create perfection. Perfection is impossible. We saw that yesterday. Yep. All you're trying to see is, is the call that they made, did he, because he was looking at the guy's feet, did he miss the bobble that was obvious and the ball fell out? I will bet you right now uh, a nickel, um, and I normally don't bet big money like that, hmm. um, that the Kansas City guys that watch the replays could probably cite three or four uh, missed calls against them during the game. Sure. Like if they analyze it, you know, they, they, they may, if, if, it was, if they could be objective, say, there was four calls that we disagree with that went against us, and we can show you how the official was wrong. And there was only two against uh, Philadelphia, and one of them was the last one. Like, that would be an interesting conversation for people to have. Now, you're talking about the referees having one minute to take a look at And I, you probably know these numbers. I don't, but they're not very large. Out of the 60 minutes, how much actual action is there? Hmm. I can tell you how much action is in a hockey game in 60 minutes. It's a lot. It's 60. And football, eight? Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Like, I don't know. I'm sure somebody studied it. But you got eight minutes. So you so you got eight minutes over three hours. Now you're going to have eight minutes of action over three and a half hours. It doesn't seem to – the time and the length of the games doesn't seem to hurt football like it seems to hurt baseball. The, 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 the challenge you are always going to have, and it came up yesterday and it will come up in the future, is that 
they put in in every sport. They put in more and more and more rules to clarify things. And inevitably, the more rules you put in, the only thing that happens is it becomes more complicated. And yeah, every rule that you put in leads to four spin-off unexpected things that you never anticipated happening that now, oh, well, now we got to put in a rule for each of those four things. And then now each of those four things has four things that's right. going to be the spin-off. It just becomes – you almost think – was hockey that, for example, go back to hockey for a sec, because I know back in like the 1970s, the rule book was a quarter of an inch thick, and now it's an inch and a half thick. Was hockey back in the 70s so much worse? Was the rules so much, was the game so out of control? Now I know they had fighting, I'm not talking about that. Was everything so rudimentary and antiquated that we couldn't enjoy the game back when there were 100,000 fewer rules? I would say no. I would say adding rule after rule after rule after rule has A, made it impossible for the officials and B, made it impossible for fans to follow what the heck the rule is a lot of the time and C, just thrown complications into what should be a simple game. I, I think I have a, an analogy. I would say it was, and I don't know, 10, 12, between 10 or 15 years ago, they changed um, how the game of hockey was played. They they started uh, calling the hooking. Right, coming out of the lockout in the uh, 2004. was the lockout, right. Yep. They changed how the game was played. They didn't have to change one rule. They didn't change a rule. They changed how the game was played. And the game has universally been changed. Uh, they've eliminated fighting. They didn't put another rule in the book. The instigator and the aggressor were in the book 20 years ago. They didn't change that rule. Fighting's gone. And you can't hook and hold anywhere on the ice surface now. And you, as soon as your uh, stick goes near the guy's hands for a hook, they call it. Like, a lot of people believe the game is, well, I know the game is a lot faster. A lot of people enjoy that kind of a hockey versus the old version, and they never had to add a rule. But was hooking and tripping already in the rule book? Of course. Right. So you, I'm saying they didn't add a rule. Right. They just changed the application. But they changed the application and they made it, they added 10 pages for each of those things to explain. Whereas if you had just simply said, call the rule, call the rule, call the book as we have it written. And yeah, there's going to be a few things that change. You're going to add a few rules now and then you're going to, you know, they added 20 years ago, that rule where if you shoot the puck over the glass in your own end, it's a penalty. Okay, fine. The, how long could that rule possibly be taking to write. If you shoot a puck over the glass in your own end and your stick is not hit in the process or the puck is not deflected, so it's a direct shot out of your own volition, it's a penalty. I could write that in two paragraphs. I bet you that there's three pages for that. I'm, I, I have no idea, but everything has to be made so complicated. And then, you know, you, you get to Back to football, you get to this example yesterday. Um, you know, would that have would that have resolved the problem? I don't know, because I thought that for 58 and a half minutes, the officials decided what the bar was going to be, called the game to that bar, did an exceptional job up to that point. I don't think anyone had any issue. Well, the catches, but the catches were booth plays, not whether it was a catch mm -hmm. or not. They were booth things, not the officials. It's only at the very end that a one official looks like he changed what the bar was, and now that's all anyone's talking about. And this game will go down. And one more thing, we've got to go to break. I have, I have long held that I don't like replay because I would much sooner have the – I'll take the fact that there's a botched call and – we end up talking about that. The Detroit Tigers player who threw the perfect game that the umpire blew the call on. You know what? We wouldn't remember that game. We wouldn't remember that perfect game otherwise. It was a perfect game. It was amazing. But we probably still wouldn't remember it. But we always remember the blown call perfect game. This one forever will be the game that the refs threw that flag at the end. And a lot of people would say handed Kansas City the championship. Did they? Probably not. Will that be the storyline, though? For a lot of people, it will. And and you think they're not going to talk to that guy and see if he was talking to this guy or that guy and, you know, the accusations and everything else? Did he have, was he motivated to do that? And I don't believe, I, 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 we've had one 
example in professional sports that I know of, in North American professional sports, we've had one example of an official who was caught do, in the NBA doing stuff yep. that was improper. I don't believe that the guys in the NFL or the NHL or the NBA now are doing that. I don't believe it. I think that was such a rarity. But you now have the belief in some people that this is what was going on. The NFL was trying to make sure Kansas City won for some reason. Anyway. Don, yesterday at the Super Bowl, the camera panned some of the celebrities in the crowd, and one of them was LeBron James. And as the camera was focused on him, he mimed as if he was crowning himself, because he, of course, is King James. He was putting on his crown, and as soon as I saw this, I thought to myself, if you really are the greatest of all time at whatever it is that you do, do you need to tell people that? I would have to think that the people that want to know or should know, and I think everybody does, he's now the all-time leading scorer, although he had an opportunity to get three-pointers that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar didn't. Uh, I think everybody knows, and I don't remember Wayne Gretzky or Gordy Howe or Bobby Orr ever mentioning or suggesting, you guys know I'm the best, right? Well, they, they, they always said the opposite. They always pointed yeah. to someone else. Gord, yeah. Wayne Gretzky always said, oh, Gordie Howe was the best. I, if you can find a tape of Wayne Gretzky saying, I'm the greatest hockey player of all time, yeah. it'll be new tape to me because I've never heard it. Yeah, it's that's akin to a guy that um, makes a donation to the local church of $10,000, put the roof on it, and then goes immediately out and tells absolutely everybody about it. Those are the kind of things that you just make yourself feel good do it and take accolades if somebody finds out. And I don't think he needs to put a crown, fake crown on his head at the Super Bowl game. Those 100 million sports fans probably know he's the all-time leading scorer well, in the NBA. But I think he's, uh, it, it strikes me as I was watching this, I don't think Wayne Gretzky, using your example, I don't think Wayne Gretzky was ever as, had as much, I don't know what the word is, self-doubt that he felt like he needed to blow his own horn or that... You know, I don't see um, Tom Brady saying, oh, yeah, I am by far the greatest of all time. Look, at, you know, Tom Brady doesn't do the, like, belt thing, you know, yeah. the, the, to show because he's got seven. Or uh, I know that Tom Brady at times has done a funny picture where he's held up his seven rings. But it's more of a it, – it's not – I've never taken that to say it's not been in competition with someone else. With LeBron James, it seems like it's always in competition with Michael Jordan. And I think, honestly, LeBron James comes out way ahead in the discussion if he says, Michael Jordan's the best player of all time. Of course he does. And then people, because people are going to make up their own minds. And I think that to deflect the glory is only going to make people then rise to his defense, as opposed to looking at him as a windbag who's demanding that he get praise that they don't want to give him. I'll give you an analogy. I think the wing, it's uh, it's made up, but I'll give you an analogy that Wayne Gretzky might have used when he passed Gordie Howe for points, for example. And let's say in Gordie Howe's era that they only gave out one assist per goal. Wayne Gretzky, when the first guy would have said, well, they give out two assists. That's how I, that's how I did it. Mm-hmm. Like now you can get two points. I didn't hear LeBron James talk after he passed uh, uh, Kareem. Kareem. But one of the first things he should have said is, but he could never get a three-pointer. So just downplay your well, accomplishment. Gretzky just within the last two weeks was asked about Ovechkin possibly passing him. And one of the things he says, it's way harder to score now. I mean, Gretzky said, so it's always been about deflecting. And you know what? Everybody knows who they think is the person. I don't think that LeBron James, by doing that, convinces a single person, oh, he crowned himself. He must be the greatest. If anything, he deters people from thinking that. I don't think that you can't possibly as an athlete, your argument about whether you're the greatest of all time is what you do on the court not the verbal or miming arguments afterwards that you make or points you make afterwards to say it. So I don't think that there was a single person that saw that yesterday and went, oh, he must be the greatest then. No, if you have to tell somebody, you're probably not. Right? If you have to explain it and say, uh, Scott, you probably don't know this about me, 
but here's what I'm really good at. I, it's like an anchor man. I'm kind of a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's just a yeah, I, I I was sort of amazed by this to think that a guy who has had all the accolades that he has, has that record now, has championships, has all-star games, has billions of dollars, whatever he's got, that he feels so insecure, it seems, that he needs to make sure that you know that he's the greatest. Well, he, he and I, I don't, obviously, I don't know the guy. He may have done it. And five seconds later went, that was a bonehead move. Well. But he did it. But it's not the first time because just when he set the record, he was interviewed that night and they said, "Who's the? are you the greatest player of all time? He goes, I believe I am. And again, even if you believe you are, that's a moment where I think you say, look, there's five guys who all could easily lay claim to that title. Michael Jordan could, is is one of the greatest players. Magic Johnson, Kareem is, Bill Russell, Wilt Chamberlain, you go down the list. And I think more people would be appreciative of that and see his humility as a reason to like him and maybe believe now that he is the greatest player of all time than seeing someone who's just bragging about himself and becomes unlikable. Or another way to frame it is, is what the hockey greats would do is – and they probably wouldn't even go this far, but LeBron James could easily have said, well, there are people that think I probably am over the last decade, but you have to remember the game changes, it evolves, and Michael Jordan was wonderful during his run, Wilt Chamberlain was wonderful. Like, the decades changed the game. Some people think I have been over the last last 10 years. Why say, yeah, I think I am? Yeah, no, there's, there's a million different ways that it could be answered. You know, and even if you say that, there are people who say that I am, and I appreciate that. And there are people who say that Michael Jordan is, and you know what? They've got an argument too. And, and I mean, you and I are just throw, like off the top of yeah, our heads. Yeah. So, and but surely, at some point along the way, he know he's known this question is going to come, and has given some thought to it. We've just done this, flying off the yeah. seat of our, you know, in. in off the top of our heads, surely he's laid in bed sometimes thinking, what am I going to answer when that question is asked of me and given it some thought or his people have, he's got people. Um, <laughs> we don't have people. No, we don't, don't have people. And don't call me Shirley. It, it, you know what it reminds me of too? And uh, Frank, I think, okay, Frank says it started with Muhammad Ali. That's true. Uh, the one though that Muhammad Ali somehow pulled it off endearingly. I'm not exactly sure how he did that. And I think that that's a, that's a problem, not for him, but for the fact that no other athletes have seemed to be able to do that. So if you, if you model that boasting after Muhammad Ali, you're going to look bad by comparison because you're not him and your personality is not his personality. Well, th th that was part of the Howard Cosell and Muhammad Ali uh, shtick. Right. And every time he said, I am the greatest he'd go out and beat the snot out of the guy yep. and prove he was the greatest, right? Like when he said it, then he went out and did it and he was heavyweight champion of the world. It's when you do it and then go get your but even, life okay, punched up. But Don, even for the five years or whatever it was that Mike Tyson was killing everybody in the ring, if Mike Tyson had said, I'm the greatest, everybody would have said, you're a jerk. Yeah, you're right. It's, there's something about Ali's personality yeah. that allowed that to work and v nobody else has been able to do it. The other, no, but the one I was thinking of, when Ricky Henderson set the all-time base stealing record and Lou Brock was standing right beside him and he goes, today I'm the greatest of all time. It's like, no, today you're a bit of a dink. Yeah. Show a little humility to the guy who, you know, it's a different game. It's a different world. As you say, things change and nobody has a problem with somebody showing humility in that moment. Mm. Nobody ever does. It's a wonderful quality. And it, it really doesn't. is. It's a wonderful and, and if you heard him say, oh, but Lou Brock is still the greatest. Yeah. And you thought Ricky Henderson was the greatest. Is him saying, oh no, Lou Brock is still the greatest. Are you going, oh yeah, you're right. Ricky stinks. You're still going to believe yeah. he was the greatest at that. He's not changing your mind. He's just making himself more likable. Yeah, he is. Yeah, people, and you, know, you can say things like he's still the legend, right? He Now, you can't exactly do the Gretzky thing and say, well, the, 
the bases are closer together, so it's easier now, or people are slower, or, but you're right. You don't have to stand in front of the guy that's held the record forever and say, now I'm the greatest. No, but there's lots of different things. Ricky Henderson could have said, you know what? I've had a batting lineup behind me that has hit fastballs so well that I've been protected a lot. So, uh, you know, I've had opportunities that Lou never had. Again, I don't think anyone is going to then look and say, yeah, he's right. He really is a first place, but with a giant asterisk. Unless, except for the people who already thought that. Yep. Well, I think it's a Canadian thing. I, I, I would think there are far less Americans that would be offended by him putting the crown on than Maybe. guys like me and you going, nah, that probably wasn't necessary. But has, has okay, has Tom Brady... To, to your under to your recollection to what you've seen has Tom Brady ever come out and pronounced that I'm the greatest of all time? No, I've never heard it. It could have happened, but I've never heard it. Um, has Magic Johnson, who I would, I'll 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 still say that you know the discussion is always who's greater, Michael Jordan or LeBron, who's the greatest. I always say it's Magic Johnson. I'm, and I don't I don't I don't apologize right because Magic Johnson not only played every position on the court, he made everybody on his team an all star. With his yeah. passing. Every single player that played with Magic Johnson went to an all-star game pretty much. I don't know you can say that with other guys. And so, you know what? Does Magic Johnson say, I'm the greatest player ever? I don't think so. He's And I think he's, you know, when, uh, he's a pretty competitive guy. Larry Bird. Does Larry Bird say that? You, you could make an argument he is. Um, Politics, they don't. Nobody says I'm the greatest prime minister. Well, Donald Trump did. We're going to bury Hazel and Callian tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, she never did. I and don't she think. never said, I am the greatest mayor in the history of Canada. And could she not have? She didn't have to. Other, people's, a, other people said exactly, it. Exactly. Exactly the point. Hazel McCallion could have said, I've been serving for longer than anyone else. She could have worn a t-shirt, longest serving. She didn't have to. She didn't have to tell anybody. Because if you are the greatest, people know. I think LeBron James, I hope. LeBron James thought exactly what you just said a minute or two ago. That when he did that, he, five seconds later, when the camera went off, went, oh. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.